Good morning. Welcome to this gathering of Chillicothe Baptist Church. My name is Dan Nelson. I'm a worship pastor. As you make your way into the auditorium, we'll get started this morning. We're here to encourage one another. We're here to build one another up. Uh, We're here to just walk alongside one another in our our Christian faith and, and to encourage one another. And here in this time, we are here to glorify and worship and exalt Christ, right? And so as we endeavor to do that, as we strive to do that, um, let's read scripture together to, to orient our minds and to fix our attention on the things of God. So let's stand together and let's read Psalm 73 together. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. It is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge that I may tell of all of your works. Be that my vision. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Not be all else to me, save that thou art. Thou my best thought.
all I need in Jesus my Savior my joy is complete onward to glory yet here I will wait I will trust in Christ every step I take church family. It's good to see you this morning, and I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles and go to Psalm 62, Psalm 62, and while you do that, let me just kind of tell you what we're doing today. We've been working through the book of Colossians verse by verse in a series called Christ Sufficient, Christ Supreme, and as we come to certain points as we go through it, I, I like to sometimes pause what we're doing and then go to the Old Testament, and when we go to the Psalms, we just call it Psalm Sunday. And so one of the benefits of going specifically to a Psalm is that the Psalms are expressions of worship. 
And so we're able to glean on the character of God and also not only know truth, but to feel the truth very deeply in our souls. And as you, as you saw, as we were singing together, um, one of the, one of the psalms that we actually sang or at least referenced was Psalm 62. My soul waits on you, on God alone. And so this morning, uh, we're going to walk through this psalm together. And what I do pray is that it is an encouragement to you uh, as we do. And I think the other thing that you'll see is you'll see just how many themes that are in this, just this passage alone that directly correlate with the book of Colossians. Christ's sufficiency, God's sufficiency, Christ's sovereignty, God's sovereignty. And so... Um, and then what you can see is how the Bible is so gloriously unified in one central message that ultimately exalts Christ our Lord. And so that is not the introduction to the sermon. That's just a little bit of explanation as to what we're doing. Now, let's go to Psalm 62. And the title of the message today is, My Soul Will Wait on God Alone, or My Soul Trusts in God Alone. Let's stand as we read God's Word together. To the choir master according to Judithan, a psalm of David. For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse Selah. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us, Selah. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase... Set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. This morning, I I want us to think about waiting, waiting and trusting, waiting is not easy for most of us. Uh, in fact, just visit the local BMV or any BMV for that matter at certain times of the day and you experience the stress of waiting. And usually when we are in places like that, whether it's uh, in the BMV or in a line, um, we are, we'll mess with our phones, we'll read a book, we'll do something to just let the time pass. We wait, we watch the minutes go by, we watch the clock tick. And I use that just kind of as a, a bridge as well to have us think about waiting in terms of the Christian life. 
In the Christian life, waiting means more than just waiting for the time to pass. In fact, in moments of danger and distress and despair, we wait on God. And waiting involves looking to God for hope and help. I can remember when our youngest son, Elias, had brain resection surgery some years back. And like anyone who's been in a hospital and in a hospital waiting room, you are urgently waiting, but it's a lot different than just passive waiting. As a believer, you're waiting, and in your soul, you are crying out to God, and you are in a position where you have to trust Him with whatever outcome may occur. And all forms of suffering and persecution and hardship that we experience in the Christian life, and and there's no reason to try to to compare any of those things. I mean, any form of any of those things in the life of the believer causes us to wait, knowing that it is only God that that can help us, and it is only in God that we have hope. I, I and and as we kind of think about that, that brings us right to this psalm. In fact, some, is called the, some have called this psalm a psalm of confidence because that whole idea of waiting for God, like all of you have probably experienced, just like me, that's exactly what is going on here in David's life as he writes this psalm under divine inspiration. We don't know what circumstances prompted this psalm. It, it could have been his conflict with Saul. It, it, it might have been the rebellion of his son, Absalom. Uh, it, it could have been any adversity that King David experienced or any problem that arose in his reign over Israel. But whatever it was, it was deeply painful and greatly stressful, causing him to cry out, My God, for God alone, my soul waits. He does not say that he waits for his circumstances to change. Pay attention. He doesn't say he's waiting for this difficult time to just pass. Or instead, what he's saying is, is that he's just waiting on the Lord. Now, with that in mind, we also need to just establish that this is a psalm. Meaning, it is a song that the people of God would sing in temple worship. And so while it definitely has a specific relationship to David, seeing that he wrote it under the inspiration of the Spirit, imagine the people of God, the Israelites, in the temple singing this psalm. And so beyond David, and you see that in the inscription which I read, to the choir master, according to Jeduthun, who would have been the, the, the leader of worship. And so, beyond David, this psalm is a song for God's people who are weak and weary, fearful and feeble, so that we together can sing of our confidence in God, even as we wait for Him to fulfill His purposes. What turbulent circumstances are you experiencing this morning? What difficult season do you find yourself in life? What problems seem to exist outside of here that seem to be 
pressing in on God's people, the church, not just this church locally, but even the church at large. And what does it mean then to wait on God? Well, to wait on God, if we just get a brief definition quickly, is to, to wait is to trust. It is to look. It is to depend with confidence on God because He is who you need for true salvation, for security, and safety from any enemy. That's what it means to wait. To wait is to trust and to depend on God. So the key truth that this psalm is celebrating, this key truth that, that, that we should walk out of here singing is this. Trust God alone at all times and in all things. I mean, that's what it means to wait is to trust God at all times and in all things. Now, the question that we, we should ask, that, okay, so how does that key truth kind of unfold in this psalm? How does it unfold? And so that's what I want you to do. I want you to just walk with me through the psalm to see how the people of God trust God alone at all times and in all things. The first thing I want you to observe is the declaration of trust. Look at verse 1 and 2. For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. Now, I'm really glad that we just, that Pastor Dan had us sing just a little while ago, because I think in your mind as we're reading it and I'm explaining it, you can also feel that sense of singing it as well. And so the, the first thing you see is that his declaration, it, it involves God, the psalmist, and his enemies. So let's just look at that. First, we see what he says about God. He says that there is salvation from God alone. His declaration of trust is this. There is salvation from God alone. That word alone, as you can see it there in that first verse, the word alone, it, it can also be translated only. And so what you see is only and alone appear five times in the first eight verses. Just pay attention how many times you see alone, alone, alone. It emphasizes, David is emphasizing that the sole object of his faith and trust is God. It's not just he's saying, oh yeah, I trust God some, I trust God and something else. He's saying, no, I trust God alone. He's not trusting someone else. He's not trusting God and something else added to God. He's saying, listen, my soul waits, my hope is, my faith is, my trust is in God alone. And why does he say that? Well, look at the text. Because from God alone comes what? His salvation. Salvation. Salvation meaning that the entire covenant of redemption originates with God. He is the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God through whom salvation comes. That's exactly what David means when he says this. How, how, what, why, in what way would he, he have experienced this in the history of God's people? Well, it is God who had called Abraham, remember? It is God who had rescued Israel out of Egyptian slavery. It is he who gave them the promised land. It is he who had established them as his people. It is he who had given David the throne. And it is he who had made the promise 
that salvation would come for all the nations of the world through the Messiah who would one day appear. So it is no wonder that David says, from God alone comes my salvation. Israel knew that salvation is from the Lord and the Lord alone. Not the Lord and man, not the Lord and something else, but salvation is from the Lord and the Lord alone. Now, think about that in relationship to us today. Isn't our declaration the same thing? Don't we say together that in Christ alone, our salvation has come from God? In fact, to become a child of God, to be a Christian, is to trust Christ alone from salva- for salvation. We don't put our faith in Christ and baptism. We don't put our faith in Christ and church attendance. We don't put our, our faith in Christ and good works. No, we put our faith in Christ alone. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Our greatest need then is salvation, not deliverance from circumstances. That's why David begins with salvation. He just simply begins with recalling the reality of salvation that the people of God have experienced. And for us in the church, Christ, the Son of God, who came from heaven, died on Calvary, rose from the dead, He is the only mediator, the only mediator between God and man. And so you must trust Christ alone to be saved, for life eternal can be found in no one else. That is a sin. Do you see that's that that was essential in the Old Testament? That's essential in the New Testament. And that's why Peter says to Jesus, when Jesus said to the disciples, after all the people were walking away from from Jesus and the disciples, Jesus says, So do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter says to him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the only one of God. In other words, Peter's just saying what we just sang, Psalm 73. Who who else do I have in heaven except you? You're the only one that we can trust for salvation. And that message is as simple that any person from child to adult can understand. You can only be saved by putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. By believing he died on the cross for your sins. That he was buried and then on the third day he rose again. And that is how we're saved, by Christ alone. And so we celebrate that. But notice the movement. Watch the movement of the psalm, right? So he says, there, there is salvation from God alone. And then notice in verse 2, you see that there is security in God alone. Do you see the connection? Look what he says. He alone. <laughs> from, from, from God alone comes salvation. He alone is my rock. He alone is my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. So, so where does this then lead David, in his psalm, he says that if salvation is from God, then in God is our security. If salvation is from God, 
then in God is our security. My security is not in my feelings. It's not in my emotions. It's not in my intellect. It's not in my ability. It's not in anything else. My security is in Christ. So, again, if we trust Christ alone for salvation, and we are secure in Him, then what does that mean? Well, that means that we have, that we can have confidence. So the psalmist has learned that God is sufficient and He's secure. And He's confident because of who God is. Look at the text. He's my rock. He's my salvation. He's my fortress. Okay. What does that mean? I shall not be shaken. So because God is his rock, his redeemer, his refuge, because salvation is from God, God is his security, and that security will produce confidence. I shall not be shaken. Why? Because I'm strong? Because my faith is so powerful? No. Because He is my rock. He is my refuge. He is my salvation. And ladies and gentlemen, when we are secure in God, then we will be confident in faith. Today, we understand that God has given us all we need in Christ. Jesus is our security. And again, if if we trust Christ alone, then if we are secure in Him, then you know what that means? then that means I can trust him in all of our circumstances. I mean, think about it. You've already trusted him for what is most important. Isn't it funny how we get this all messed up? I have already trusted him. By his grace, I have trusted him for salvation. Now, how much more can I just trust him with everything else? I I, I can trust him with anything. I can trust him with with my eternal destiny. And if I can trust him for that, well, you know what? Then I can't, you and I can trust him for anything. So then you must look to him not only to be your savior, but to be your help and your hope in time of need. He is the all-sufficient savior. And we depend on him for everything. Isn't that what Paul says to the church in Philippi? Remember when he said to the Philippians that he says that he tells them that my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in Christ Jesus. Therefore, don't be anxious about anything. Don't worry about anything. Because you are not only saved by God, you're secure in God and you can have confidence in him. So we need to believe this. Not just say this. We need to believe this and we need to realize that we are safe and secure, as the hymn says, from all alarms. And that's what David says. He not only says what he believes, but he says in the result of this, I will not be shaken no matter what. But notice, it's a good thing he said it, isn't it? Because not only does he say there's salvation from God alone, there is security in God alone. There are adversaries and adversity that come. So after he makes this bold declaration, right? Notice what he then acknowledges. He's got problems. There are adversaries in adversity. How long all of you attack a man to batter him? Like a leaning wall, a tottering fence. They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. Selah, and that's the end of the stanza. 
But what David acknowledges is, we, and again, we don't know if he's talking about maybe those that have aligned themselves with Absalom in the treason against him. Maybe, again, it's those the armies that have gathered around Saul in order to overthrow him or, and to attack him. We don't know necessarily. But what we do know is, is that he does acknowledge that he has real adversaries, real enemies, real adversity taking place in his life. His enemies do two things. One, his enemies press against him. See what the text says? How long will you attack a man, batter him, push upon him, like a, like a battering fence, like a tottering fence, like a wall that's about to collapse. You ever had a, a, a wall that surrounded, that lined your driveway? We used to have a, a wall that lined our driveway and erosion slowly would start to tip and tip and then you just push on it and it could just collapse. That's what David says is happening to him. He's, his enemies are pressing in upon him. He feels weak. He feels weary like a wall, like a, like about to collapse. He's overwhelmed, fearful as his enemies surround him. Quite a difference from the bold declaration in the beginning, isn't it? See the movement? See the movement? I like it because this is real. Right? Because there are days I'm ready to declare that God is my salvation, and even as I'm declaring it, things are pressing in. But his enemies not only press against him, his enemies plot against him. They tell lies, they threaten, they curse, they slander, and they plot against him. They contemplate his demise and even his death. David is experiencing the world's hatred and hostility as God's anointed. And we have to kind of lift this even above David because David is in the stream of God's redemptive purposes and all the hostility, all the hatred, all the things he's facing ultimately are, a, are, are an attempt of the enemy, the enemy to thwart God's big purposes. And so he's experiencing all of this. Now, now that we kind of understand that, think about today where we are as Christians. The church experiences the same thing. Threats from within. Compromise within. Apostasy within. Heresy that, that still is repackaged and resold that has, has been around for centuries. Reappears. Threats from without, a world that is growing more opposed to God and the gospel and the truth as our culture becomes more secularized. I mean, how much more, do, how, how many times do we hear the emphasis in our own culture? It's certainly not to, in God alone I trust, it's what? In self alone I trust, right? I trust myself, I trust my, my, I trust the science. We, we hear the, we, we hear this consistent message. That goes against the message of truth. And like David, we feel oppressed against by the enemy, assailing us with doubts and fears and temptations and threats. But let's also think about this even more directly because I think we're permitted to. After all, right? They would all have, all the people in the temple would have been singing this. And if all the people would have been singing, I mean, certainly we all experience circumstances of life, right? Discouragement, sickness, death, pain, sorrow, so many things. Even Paul himself said that he despaired in what was taking place as he wrote to the Corinthians. So like David, we often feel like a wall about to collapse and we experience darkness of despair and afflictions of adversity. 
But, you know, Jesus himself, our Lord, experienced that. The same kind of hatred, the same kind of threats, the same kind of reviling. Listen to this, what Peter says in 1 Peter 2. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not return. But continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. What does that mean? It means that Christ, the Son of God, entrusted himself to the perfect will of the Father who judges justly. He waited like David. He trusted God the Father even as he was falsely accused, mocked, reviled, and then crucified on the cross for our sins. He patiently endured and waited for God's justice and exaltation in the resurrection. And for us, our Lord has gone before us. And so we too must trust Him and Him alone and nothing else, even when the enemy assails us. So as we apply the truth here, this declaration of trust, think about this. You are not trusting God at all if you are not trusting God alone. You are not trusting God at all if you are not trusting God alone. Who are you trusting for salvation? As you walk through life and you think about your eternity, is your faith in Christ alone? And what about you, Christian, who the circumstances you're experiencing and the difficulties you may face, where is your security? Is it in God? Can you declare with David even while you face various things that in God alone, for God alone, you wait? That's the question that we have to ask. So notice the movement of what's happening. David has declared, right? Bold, bold beginning. Verse 3 and 4 the enemies are, are kind of are just battering him. And so by the time you get to the end of the first stanza, he went from up here to down here. Ever been there? <laughs> right? He went from the mountain to the valley. So what do you do when you're in the valley? Well, look at verse 5. For God alone, O oh my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. So the second thing that we see is... From the declaration of truth, we move to the second stanza, which is a reassurance of truth. Reassurance. Sometimes what we go through in life as believers takes toll on us, doesn't it? The pressing and the plotting against us of our enemies, it begins to take its toll. I mean, we become weak. We feel weak. What then do we do? Well, look what David does. Do you see what he did? He encourages himself. Look at it. He says again, for God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. It's like he's talking to himself. So he does not say anything new here. Nothing new. I'm not going to repeat myself. (laughs) And what I just explained, you heard it. God's the source of his salvation. God is his security. David doesn't say anything new. He simply restates the same truth in such a way that it renews the soul. He reminds himself again of what he already declared. That God alone is his salvation and security. And he tells himself that all his hope, look at it, all my hope. He is my rock, my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. And then verse 7, on God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. 
And so he tells himself that all his hope, all his salvation rests on God alone. And there's something else that's interesting here. So in other words, he's reminding himself of that sure foundation he's on. But he he does say something different. He says, God is my glory. God is my glory. You know what he means by that? God is my treasure. God is my everything. I mean, what an important reminder, right? I mean, when it feels like everything else you may lose, in the end, what do you have? You have God. You have God in Christ. You have the joy of your salvation. And so that's what David says. He says, God is my glory, my treasure, my everything. And so what David does is he preaches to himself the same truth he's already declared. I think that what that reminds us of is what Paul often did in the New Testament. I would have you brothers to remember. I would remind you brothers of the gospel. A constant call to us to remember, to as Jerry Bridges says, preach the gospel to ourselves. I would urge you, church, that we should make it a constant habit to remind ourselves of the truths of the gospel on a regular basis. This is what C.J. Mahaney writes in his book, Living the Cross-Centered Life, which absolutely is one of the most impactful books I have ever read. He says, reminding ourselves of the gospel is the most important daily habit we can establish. If the gospel is the most vital news in the world, and if salvation by grace is the defining truth of our existence, we should create ways to immerse ourselves in these truths every day. No days off allowed, he writes. I tell you, when I came across that, that has been probably of all things most important in my life and in my family and with others. Let us be reminded of who God is and who Christ is and what God has accomplished. Let us remind ourselves of what he's accomplished at the cross. And let us be reminded of who we are in him and who he is. The rock, the fortress, the refuge That's why we just sang a few minutes ago, right? This is love I can't explain. This is mercy unreserved. Through your sacrifice so great, I have peace that's undeserved. For the battle has been won, and I fear no shame or loss. Now the sting of death is gone. And then what's the chorus say? You're my solid rock, my salvation. See, sometimes we forget even what we're doing. When we come to church and, and we're singing together, when we're praying together, when we're sitting and we're hearing the teaching or the preaching of God's word, you know what we're doing? We're just being reminded and renewed and reassured often of truths that we already know, but we have done, been battered by the world and all that's going on that maybe we have weakened or we have just may have a slight amnesia and we need to be reminded of it when we come together. And that's exactly what the people of God have always experienced. But I love it because he not only, in his reassurance, not only does he encourage himself, look at, look at the next verse, he urges others. Verse 8, trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. No, no individualized faith here. This is the faith of God's people. He is our God. He is our refuge. You know, as I was thinking about this, 
he urges others to do the same. For all you kids in here, a lot of kids in here. How many of you kids have ever watched Finding Dory? Not Finding Dory, Finding Nemo. Sorry, I'm getting my Disney movies mixed up. Finding Nemo. Remember what Dory says to Marlon when he's about ready to give up? He says, when, when life gets you down, just keep swimming. I won't sing it. Just keep swimming. Right? Every kid in here ought to know that. You know what David's doing for God's people? He's just saying, you know what? Just keep trusting. Just keep trusting. Because God is our rock and our refuge and our redeemer. He's our rest. He's just repeating and reminding. And so David is telling God's people, instead of focusing on your circumstances and on your problems and on your enemies and on all these other things, focus on God and not just God general, but Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. And for us, this God who has made himself known in Christ. Go to him, David says. I mean, look how personal this is. Oh God, on God, he, he says, trust in him at all times, oh people, pour out your heart. Isn't that, isn't that, isn't that endearing that he says that? Pour your heart out to him. This is not the image of some distant deity who, who's simply on his throne, and he is on his throne. But this is a God who has come near to us. And we can go to him and we can talk to him and we can pray to him and we can, he can, we can fall into his arms. You ever had one of your children just fall into your arms? And you take them up and you hold them and you console them and you let them know that it's going to be okay. That is the invitation of this psalm. We are singing to the God whose arms have been opened wide through the blood of His Son that was shed on the cross. And He invites us as His people with every anxiety, with every worry, with every circumstance to cast it all on Him. Cast it all on me. Because He can hold it and carry it. Pour out your soul. You ever been there? Oh, I know all of you have at some point. And if you haven't, you will. Where you don't know what to say. Outside of crying out. I am helpless. And you God are my hope and my help in times of need. And that's not just true for David. That's true for all of God's people. And so here's the truth. As you go to the end of verse 8. Here's, here's what we should do as, we're, as, we, as we go into this week. Preach the gospel to yourself daily and keep trusting God alone. How do you need your heart assured this morning? What assurance do you need? Well, it's all here. Maybe you just needed to hear God is your rock. God is your refuge. God is your, is your rest, is your hope, your fortress. What do you need to pour out to the Lord today? Now, that leads us to a, a third movement here, okay? So let's follow the movement of the psalm. First, declaration of trust, right? We're all bellowing it out. We're singing to the top of our lungs. And then we go, we go down an octave, right? <laughs> the enemies are battering and they're, you know, they're, they're, I mean, life is, we're setting in the realities of, of what we face are, are real 
But then notice in verse 9, we move up again. And perspective now is gained. Look what he says in verse 9. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. And the balances, they go up. They are altogether lighter than a breath. But put, to, put no trust in extortion. Set, set, set no vain hopes on robbery. And what he's saying is don't put your hope in the schemes of man to gain status and wealth and, and, and whatever else. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Now, now, for us to see the movement, you got to remember what we said about three and four. Remember, he started to get weak. And then he preached to himself the truth, the gospel truth, the greatness of God. And now his whole mindset has shifted about man. A right view of God will always correct a wrong view of man. And that's what happens here. You don't, he is starting to view man in a, in, in view of God. And as he does, he observes two things. One, we have nothing to fear from man. We have nothing to fear from man. And two, we have nothing to hope in man. I mean, just think about that. I mean, look look how he went from they're battering him, they're attacking him, he's a wall about to collapse. And then in verse 9, he says, those of low estate are but a breath. Man is but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. Those that think they have power, those that think that they have, that, those that, th- those that have lifted themselves up against God and His anointed, uh, they're nothing. You know why? Because they're just a breath. You don't have anything to fear. Your enemies don't pose any real threat. All these things that seem like giant threats to us, they're really nothing. And I think the church today needs to be reminded of that. We don't need to fear man if we're trusting God. Do we not believe that Christ is able to take care of us no matter what happens? Did he not say, lo, I will be with you always, even until the end of the age? Does not John say in 1 John, he that is in you is greater than he that is in the world? So our perspective changes and we see the insufficiency of man. Right? The insufficiency of man. Man poses no threat. So don't live in fear of man. Don't enslave yourself to a fear of man and a fear of what man can do. Instead, entrust yourself to the Lord. But the second thing is he, we have nothing to hope in man. We have nothing to hope in man. And that's what he means when he says, they are together lighter than, or, or verse 10, put no trust in extortion, set no vain hope on robbery, on riches, increase, set not your heart on them. And, and, and here's, what, here's what one author says, uh, rightly, this is Dane Ortland in his devotional on Psalms. He says that pain and suffering expose where our trust often lies. Think where people look amid pain and suffering, hardship and difficulty, right? I mean, the market is filled with self-help, uh, self-help manuals. We look to self-help gurus, substance, sexual pleasure. Self, the self-help experts, work, success, status, money, possessions. We, 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 we dive into those things. But the reality is there is no hope in man and in the ways of the world. For the believer, pain should reveal that our secure trust is not in anything on this earth, but in the Lord alone. He is our refuge. 
So the implication for God's people here and for us today is that don't look to yourself for strength. Don't look to someone or something else for hope. Church, we don't look to the government to save us. We don't look to the Supreme Court to save us. Because Christ is the head of the church and He is Lord of all. So we do not put our hope in man. And on a ground level, what that means is is that, listen, we will, don't even put our hope in one another because, listen, we're sinners and we will, even though saved by grace, we'll disappoint one another. Don't put anything or anyone in the place where only Jesus can be. He, he's the only one that can be your savior. He's the only one that can be your hope. Don't look to your spouse. Don't look to your children. Don't look to your job. Don't look to money. Don't look to, don't look to any of those things as a means to rescue you, give you meaning, or give you ultimate hope. Because all of it will fail in the end. Only Christ for the church has that place. And any of you who ever have walked the path of suffering and adversity, you know that that is true. Because that is how our faith is refined. We are reminded that in the end, all we really do have is Christ alone. And that's why Proverbs says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. So the truth here in this third movement of the psalm is, is that only Christ is sufficient to be your hope and salvation. So are you living in the fear of man? Are you putting your hope in other things other than Christ? Christian, be reminded that Christ is sufficient. That'll be a big bridge that we'll walk across when we go to the next section of Colossians next week. But there's a third and final thing I want to point out. So, again, let's be reminded of the movement. We started with the declaration of trust, right? Then we went to the reassurance of truth. Because he went down, and then being reassured, he went up. Once he was reassured, he recognizes the insufficiency of man. There's no hope in men. And then the fourth thing is, he concludes the psalm celebrating the lessons of faith. Look at verse 11. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God. And that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. So notice what he says there as he closes the psalm. He, he anchors everything into the authoritative word of God. God has spoken. God is sure in his word. His word is trustworthy. His promises are sure. He is, and he has learned through the word of God, the revelation of God, to wait on the Lord. Now, the question that I have to ask is, okay, what, wait for what? Wait for what? Well, that's where uh, we have to have an overarching understanding of the whole Bible. We are waiting for the outcome of our faith. Right here in the people of Israel, they were waiting for the Messiah. Well, guess what? The Messiah has come. And we have believed in him. And now we are continuing to wait for the time that he returns. The outcome of our faith, Peter says, when we see him face to face and we behold him in all of his glory. That's what we wait for. We are waiting for everything to be complete. 
And as we wait, we just don't hang on to Bible verses. We hold on to everything that God has promised in the full scope of Scripture. We understand Revelation 22, and that's why we rest in God's Word. But notice the two things that he's learned from God's Word. God is sovereign in power, and God is steadfast in love. Look at verse 11. What does David say that we have learned? He says that power belongs to God. In other words, God is sovereign. And today, church, we recognize the same thing. He is sovereign. And if he is sovereign over history, then, well, he's sovereign over Israel. He's sovereign over King David. He is sovereign over his church. And he is sovereign because Christ reigns. And Christ is the head of the church, and all authority is his, or have, has been given to him. And if that is the case, that he is sovereign, and all power belongs to him, then that means that you can trust him. And, and, and here, here's the thought here. He can handle everything, and you need to know this, because we're often told that God will never give you more than you can handle, and that's ludicrous. Because the fact is, we can't handle anything. We are totally dependent on our all-powerful God. That's what Peter says in 1 Peter. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Listen to that. The, the all-powerful hand of God. Humble yourself. Don't put your hope in your own strength. He says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God so at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Almost, almost similarities there to that psalm right there. I mean, you, you, you see what he's, he, he first said, listen, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. He establishes God's hand as mighty. Then he tells them, you know what you can do? You can put every care in his mighty hand. And he has invited you to cast all your cares upon him, not because he just wants to demonstrate his power, but because he wants to demonstrate his steadfast love towards his people that he has saved. And so his love is permanent. It's permanent. His power is strong, sovereign. I don't have to be strong. I don't have to be in control. You know why? Because God is. God is. And this God who is strong and powerful, he is steadfast in his love. His love is permanent. It doesn't change. This word right here, steadfast love, it is his covenant, covenantal love. It is his steadfast kindness towards us. It's, it's, it never changes because God is eternal and unchanging. And he has fixed his love on those he has redeemed through the finished work of Christ. His power paired with his love makes him the perfect savior. The perfect savior. For on the cross, he conquered our sin and grants us forgiveness. And through the empty tomb, he rises over death and conquers the grave and grants eternal life to every believer. This is the truth we hold to. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also give us graciously all things? Do you see then the lessons we've learned? God's word is true. 
God is sovereign in His power. God is steadfast in His love. And that doesn't mean that everything's going to work out just the way I want it. I'm still waiting. Aren't you? Let me make it personal. So, I mentioned a surgery that my son had years ago. Some years back. And so, anybody that has children with special needs, you, you understand that that there's lots of challenges with that. And so, the way this plays out in, in, in my understanding as I think about the future is one day... I will be in the new heaven and new earth. And I will hear my son speak to me in a way he never spoke to me here. Because we will be in new bodies. And the whole hope of redemption will be complete. You see, listen, that's just one illustration. We've all got a hundred of them, don't we? One day, that longing... For that one that you love, that you know knew Christ, one day that longing will be gone because we'll be with Christ forever and with his redeemed. So you can trust God in everything and we can come to him in any, with anything. So church, as we close, trust God alone at all times and in all things. That's what we learned from Psalm 62. Don't just say it, sing it. We sing it with joy. We trust God alone at all times in all things because he's our rock, our salvation. He is our refuge. He is our fortress. He is our rest. He is our glory. Will you trust in God alone for salvation? Will you trust God alone for all that you need today? What else do you look to? What are you counting on in the end? Is it wrapped up in Christ? Spurgeon said, happy is the man who feels that, he all, all, that all he has, all he wants, and all he expects are to be found in his God. That man can say he trusts God alone at all times and in all things. Let's stand and let's pray. God, is it a grace that you give us to be able to gather with one another? And it is a gift that you give us your word. And God, sometimes it's good for us to, to celebrate the very truths that we sing and that we feel in our hearts so deeply what we know in our minds, the truth of your salvation, the truth of who you are. And so God, for the person here that's never been saved, may today they trust in Christ alone. May the believer, weak and weary, wherever any of us might be, May we be strengthened and reassured of the truth. May we as your church be reassured of your truth so we will boldly proclaim Christ and be faithful witnesses in the world around us. And God, I pray is that we will walk from here waiting on the day that all your promises are completely fulfilled in the new heaven and new earth. May we wait on you and while we wait, May we trust in Jesus' name, amen.